that's it, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament to Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And our focus this afternoon will be from verses 6 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. But let me begin from verse 5 and read down to verse 11. This is what God's Word says, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opened up your word, we ask that you would open up our minds and hearts to receive the truth of your Son. And this afternoon we ask that we would not suffer to hear merely man's voice, but we desire earnestly to hear the voice of the living God. And so by your Spirit would you communicate to us the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This passage of Scripture before us is one in which the Apostle Paul famously expounds the humiliation of our Lord's incarnation as he explains how the Lord Jesus descended from heaven, took on human flesh, and entered the world to save sinners. And what we immediately gather from this text is seeing just how far God condescended and humbled himself in order to reach us how low he had to stoop down in order to rescue us from our sin. And if you read these verses carefully, you'll notice that Paul writes it in such a way where it's almost like walking down a staircase, where each phrase progressively descends into deeper and lower humiliation until we reach the absolute bottom of the pit. Notice how Paul begins in verse 6 at what appears to be, and it is, the peak and the very summit, as he makes very crystal clear that Jesus Christ was not mere man, but that he was and is the eternal God himself, the very form of God. Now, in our modern English, the word form might sound like Paul's talking about just a shell of something, just an outward appearance of something, but that's not how the word form was used in the first century. Because in the ancient mind, to be To be the form of something was to be the embodiment of it, the very thing itself. And so what Paul means here is that Jesus was the very being, the very embodiment of God, because he was God, the creator himself, one with the Father and the Spirit. But although he was equal with God because he was God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, meaning that although God the Son was rightfully entitled to his divinity because he was God, He humbled himself by regarding his divinity as though he were not entitled to it, as though he had no claim to it, although of course he did. And so it's not that the Son of God ceased 
being God when he humbled himself. That's not possible for God to give up his divine nature, his godness. God can't stop being God. But it's that he voluntarily renounced his right and his prerogative to freely exercise his godhood, his divinity, by subjecting himself to the true limitations of humanity. And so rather than asserting his divine nature and wielding it for his own sake, he laid aside that rightful entitlement for the sake of sinners. Now, this alone, this thought of it alone, is nothing short of a marvel. Why, why would God do such a thing for us when he owes us absolutely nothing? But Paul is just getting started. Because not only did God determine such a thing in his mind, but even more it says in verse 7 that Christ actually stepped down from the position of ruler and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now this is unthinkable. That the master and lord of heaven and earth acting to take up the position of a servant. But notice how Paul clarifies and takes it yet another step down. It's not just that God took the form of an angelic servant while uh, still remaining within the heavenly domain, the world of the divine, although that alone would have been more than enough to strike wonder in our hearts as to why God should do such a thing to take up the position of an angel in heaven. But it says that he stepped outside of that heavenly realm and entered into his created universe. God himself entered into this fallen, unclean world. And that, not as an angelic visitor, but he was born in the likeness of men. Verse 7. God took on humanity and dwelt among sinners at their eye level as one of them. God became man. The creator came to his creatures as a creature. But if that alone were not low enough, verse 8 says that being found in human form, that is, having humbled himself as a true human being, as a real man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You know, the angels in heaven would have been appalled already by the mere fact that God was willing to unite himself to human nature. But we're reminded here that he did all of this in order to submit himself under the full experience of death. That the giver and sustainer of life himself, that he was for a little while made lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God he might taste death. Hebrews 2.9 Now how humiliating! What a ridiculous thought. Now, you would think that at this point, Paul would have stopped here. You would think that this was the ultimate rock bottom, that God could not have stooped any lower. I mean, how low can you go? But notice how verse 8 ends with one last phrase, one final descent down to the lowest of the low. That he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Interesting. As humiliating as death is, there was apparently something about the cross that was the pit of disgrace. Than any just ordinary death. That is to say, it's not just the fact that Jesus died, but even the manner in which he died. And all that was depicted and represented by the cross this was the shame of all shames that he came to endure. The cross is what marked the base 
of the infinite plunge down from the highest of heights of heavenly glory. Which then begs the question, what was it about the cross that was so particularly humiliating? In what way was the crucifixion the utmost condescension and humiliation of God incarnate that exacerbated even the humiliation of death itself? Well, perhaps the best way for us to understand this is by way of compare and contrast. By that I mean, first, to consider what kind of honor and glory was depicted through the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in contrast to what kind of dishonor and shame was depicted through the cross. Because remember in the Old Testament, God had revealed himself to his people Israel through the tabernacle, which was a fancy word, a way of saying a portable tent, uh, which served as God's dwelling place where his glory would descend and his presence be physically manifested within. And of course, the tabernacle later became the temple under Solomon's reign, which was a permanent building, no longer a movable tent. But the design and the architecture was really the same in spirit, just a scaled up version, if you will. But in any case, it was through the tabernacle and especially the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box laid inside the inner sanctum of the most holy place, it was through these constructed means that God chose to put his nature, his presence, and his glory on display and intimately reveal that to the people of Israel. Because remember, this was not just some ordinary room, tent, or a nice pretty box inside, but God gave very precise specifications for the construction and arrangement according to the pattern that Moses was shown from heaven. Remember, God told Moses in Exodus 25, 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. This means that the design, the layout, the furnishing was all meant to communicate something about this transcendent heavenly glory of God, their maker. And so what was the tabernacle like? What, what did it depict of God's majesty and glory? Well, imagine with me, here's a little tour guide. Imagine with me, you're, you walk in uh, and into the holy place, the outer room, and immediately on your left, there was the golden lampstand. And this lampstand was shining light into this otherwise dark room so as to show that God is the light of the world, that he is the giver and source of all knowledge and wisdom and truth. And it's in the nearness of his presence alone that there is hope of light and warmth in a dark and cold world. And all the good things, all the blessings found in his presence, all that is conducive to life and being. In fact, remember how that lampstand was to be shaped like a tree with all of these floral and garden-like aesthetics as God commanded them to adorn it with almond blossoms on each of the branches. Now, all of that was not just some arbitrary stylistic detail, but it was all intentional to show that here was the presence of God. Here was the Garden of Eden recreated. And so the golden lampstand was essentially symbolizing the illuminating tree of life. Now that was on your left. But on the other side, on your right, was the table for the showbread, or the bread of the presence as it was called. The bread was said to be 
uh, or to be set before God continually to show that he was the true and lasting and eternal food for his people. That his presence is the source of nourishment and sustenance. And God is the all-sufficient provider who deserves all thanks and praise from his creatures. Now on that note, if we make our way forward uh, on our tour of the tabernacle with the lampstand on the left and the, the bread of the presence on the right, there was in front the altar of incense, which was to be lit day and night. And smoke would fill the room and arise to the skies. And all of this was to signify the prayers of God's people, rising up to him as a smoke rises up into the skies, as David says in Psalm 141.2. And this altar of incense was a vivid reminder that God is the one to whom all praise and thanksgiving and dependence is due. We need Him for everything, for life, for breath, for everything. Apart from Him, we're nothing. Hence, we are to pray without ceasing and give thanks to Him in all circumstances. Now, behind the altar of incense, was the veil that separated the holy place, the outer room, with the most holy place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, where the Ark of the Covenant was laid. But, but this veil itself, I mean, this was, this was not some thin shear you get from Home Depot. This was a thick curtain. And, and it, was, it, it completely blocked access to the most holy place, which the high priest could only enter once a year. But even this veil, before we get to what's on the other side, this curtain was beautified. The door and gateway to God's immediate presence was to be exquisitely woven with blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And that veil was embroidered with images of cherubim, these heavenly warriors who guarded the throne of God. And so, look, this veil was something to behold in and of itself, this multicolored celestial design was a reflection of supernatural, otherworldly beauty. But such is the majesty of God, that even the wall that guards his presence radiates with heavenly glory. And then finally, inside the most holy place was the manifest presence of God upon the Ark of the Covenant. And this inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies was, was really designed to represent a throne room, the throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because the, the exact place where God manifested His presence, where He sat, if you will, was on the mercy seat. The mercy seat being the lid or the covering on top of the ark. God told Moses in Leviticus 16.2, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And it was from this mercy seat that God said in Exodus 25:22 that he would meet with man and issue his commandments for the people of Israel. In other words, this was God's seat of command and authority from which he would reign over his people by his decrees. That's why inside the ark, there was the Ten Commandments, among other items to testify of God's infallible word. But not only that, remember how the ark was designed with two cherubim carved of pure gold, one on each side, coming together with their wings and overshadowing the mercy seat in the center. And these, these warrior angels, associated with the flaming sword guarding the tree of life, they're called the guardian cherubs in the prophet Ezekiel. And, and they're called guardians not because they're protecting God, but it's because they're protecting everyone from God. And no one can just waltz into the presence of the holy and live. 
Perfect and pure light cannot coexist, even with a, a smudge of darkness, lest it swallow it all up and destroy it. And so the majesty and excellence of these cherubim point to the infinite majesty and excellence of the king whose throne they guard day and night. That's why Psalm 99.1 says that God sits enthroned above the cherubim. You see, all of this design and construction of the tabernacle and the ark, this was architectural doxology, exhibiting the glory and the praiseworthiness of God. The very furnishing of the room cried out, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is who God is. And so all this is the true glory of Jesus Christ, God the Son. One co-equal with God the Father and the Spirit. He is the radiance of the Father, the effulgence of His glory. That Christ is the very beams and photons that communicate the brilliance of divine majesty and essence to us. This is Jesus' true heavenly glory. The glory of the eternal triune sovereign God. But with all this said, what happens? What was put on display 2,000 years ago at Golgotha? What was being exhibited at the cross in contrast to everything we've just observed from the tabernacle. Well, what happened was this. The Son of God, the very glory of the Father, His glory was defaced to the uttermost. Because everything we've just described was flipped upside down. It was a complete inversion. Infinite honor and glory was vandalized, and instead, infinite dishonor and shame was put on display. Because although Jesus was the light of the world, the living golden lampstand, the tree of life incarnate, there he hung on the tree of death, the wooden cross. Galatians 3.13 curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. Though he was the bread of life, the true bread of the presence, because he was the very presence of God, come down from heaven. There he hung on the cross, himself starved of food and drink. The giver and sustainer of life was suffering the extremities of human deprivation, but was only given sour wine as a form of ridicule. Although he was the very God, to whom men should lift up their eyes and let all their prayers and praise arise like incense. On that mount of crucifixion, Jesus was lifted up to be a spectacle of scorn and shame. People looked upon him, absolutely they did. But they spoke, not their prayers nor praises, but their curses and derisions. The altar of incense had become the altar of insult. And remember how the tabernacle, even that the, the veil that covered the ark and, and clothed the Holy of Holies, even that veil was beautiful, 
woven in excellence and splendor. But it was on the cross that the veil of Jesus' humanity, which concealed his true divine glory, this most precious veil of his flesh was torn apart and shred. His lovely face spit on. His holy eyes bruised. His precious body lacerated. His gracious hands that healed the sick with such tender sympathy. And those feet that tirelessly carried the good news everywhere. They were punctured with nails. On the cross, the veil of his flesh was not a beauty to behold. But it was a bloody monstrosity, an eyesore. One from whom men would hide their faces. Remember also how the Ark of the Covenant was designed with two cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. And again, these, these magnificent celestial beings, glorious as they are, but, but they're positioned on each side of the mercy seat to point to and magnify the source of glory in the middle, the throne of God. But on the cross, here was the throne of God incarnate. Yet it wasn't cherubim to his left and to his right, but instead, two vile and guilty criminals one to his left and one to his right. And they were real criminals, suffering shamefully for, for the sins that they had committed, for the low lives that they were. And yet their shame pointed to and magnified the embodiment of shame, the man on the middle cross, who was not wearing his rightful crown of glory, but the crown of thorns. You see, the cross was the utmost abject humiliation of the Son of God. Because everything about the cross, all of the circumstances and the positioning of every piece of this public exhibition, the very stage and theater of the crucifixion, it was the proclamation of shame upon shame unto the one who is in fact the glory of all glories. In fact, that's why it was so symbolic that Jesus was stripped of his clothes because there's nothing more fundamentally shameful than that to be to be naked before everybody and i know that we've seen various paintings and depictions of the crucifixion and we see uh, them depicted as with jesus uh, hanging on the cross with the little white loincloth but you know, that's probably not accurate as to what really happened. And the only reason why people painted the crucifixion that way was out of respect and decency. But John 19.23 tells us that even his tunic, even his undergarments were taken from him. And Jesus hung on the cross for hours before the public eye, naked and ashamed. He was a public disgrace. Uh, this is the humiliation of the cross. Infinite glory subjected to infinite shame and dishonor. Now, now, why did Jesus have to endure such shame? I mean, well, wasn't death humiliating enough? Uh, why must he die so disgracefully and so shamefully? Because, friends, he was bearing our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows, our shame, our guilt that he might be for us stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. You know, what you see in the shame of the cross, this is really the shame of your sin. The shame that God sees in you 
as you are naked before him. And all the darkness and all the disgrace is laid bare. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Shame is a horrible feeling, isn't it? There's nothing quite like it. And one might say that it's the worst feeling on earth. And for this reason, if you think about it, this is why blackmail is so powerful and effective in controlling people. I mean, you can threaten people in all kinds of ways, but if there is some hidden, scandalous thing that they did in secret, and you hold it over against them, they can be made to do anything, controlled like a puppet, because they're driven by the fear of being exposed and losing every ounce of dignity or public favor or sense of worth that they once had. Which is why, sadly, a lot of people in such circumstances, they choose instead to take their own life. Because they're so crushed by the fear of open disgrace that they would rather die. This is the horrible feeling of being found out as a guilty man or guilty woman. I mean, can you imagine if everyone in this room just suddenly, all in unison, turned their heads on a swivel and looked at you with judgment in their eyes and said, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you thought that. We know everything. Now, this is just a thought experiment, okay? Because the church is the last place on earth where such judgmentalism uh, should be feared. The church should be the only place on earth where there's an atmosphere that exudes grace and the assurance of Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But just for the sake of thought experiment, imagine if that happens to you. Your heart would sink to your stomach. This is the crushing weight of sin and guilt. And if you think it would be unbearable to be exposed and disgraced before everyone in this room, how much more before God? To be disgraced before Him and to face His judgment, the only judgment that matters. But friends, this is what Jesus came to do in His love for sinners. This is why He subjected Himself to such humiliation and shame that everyone who believes in Him might not be put to shame. Though being God, clothed with the splendor of holiness and righteousness, He was stripped naked of all garments of dignity because He came to give to you His garments and clothe your nakedness with His righteousness at the cost of His dignity for just a little while. Romans 15.3, For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Me. The insults of those who insulted you fell on Me. This is why He bore such derision and disgrace. Because He was taking the place of disgraceful sinners like you and Me. And yet ironically, it is in the depths of His humiliation that we behold the very summit of God's glory revealed of His holy love for sinners. It's because of His shameful cross that His name is, is exalted to the highest because there is no other name under heaven by which shameful sinners must be saved. Jesus Christ, bearing shame and scoffing rude, 
In my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And it's the sight of the shameful cross that makes us say with the psalmist, Who is like the Lord our God? Who though being seated on high, He looks far down, yea, He comes so far down to cover indecent sinners like us. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the heap of ashes. And Christ has done all this by plunging down to the utmost base of disgrace, subjecting Himself to so great a humiliation that He might go even under you so that He would lift you up by the might of His saving grace. Christian, do you understand just how comprehensive was the finished work of Christ on the cross for you? And I wonder how many of us here are struggling in our walk with Him. Not because we aren't doing enough things for Him, but because we have lost sight of the cross. And we live carrying the burdens of our own guilt and shame instead of trusting in the one who became the embodiment of shame for us on the cross. And perhaps the manner in which you've been living the Christian life these recent days is quite akin to that of your original parents, Adam and Eve, who in seeing their own nakedness, they were, they were so filled with shame that they distanced themselves from God even laboring to sow pathetic fig leaves to cover themselves instead of trusting in the God who even in the very hour of their sin against Him, He made for them garments of skins to clothe them. And how much more you? Not by the flesh of animals, but by the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for you, He has covered you fully, with His spotless righteousness. You know, I see this so often. Precious believers, justified by faith in Christ, washed, cleansed by His blood, but struggling, being crushed under the weight of sin and guilt and shame because they insist on carrying the burden that Jesus already carried for them. Christian, you must live your life by faith, perpetually under the shadow of the cross. Go nowhere else. Be nowhere else. Remember how God said to Moses concerning the tabernacle, I will be at the mercy seat. And he said, there I will meet with you. Well, that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, was all just a shadow and a copy. But of what? 1 John 2, 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Literally, Jesus Christ is the mercy seat for our sins. Christian, meet with God. Commune with God always at the foot of the cross. There I will meet with you, he says. Draw near to him even in your hours of darkness, in the full assurance of faith, your conscience sprinkled clean as you determine
to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified for you. Some of you here today, you have yet to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But now you've been shown the cross of our Lord. You see so plainly what a Savior and friend we have in Jesus. Friends, stop trying to hide from God. You can't hide from Him. Stop trying to hide your own shameful nakedness. Stop trying to atone for your sins. Just humble yourself. Confess your sin and shame and trust Jesus to save you. And this is God's unfailing, irrevocable promise that everyone who trusts in Him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glory of the cross, the glory even in the shame of our Lord, and yet for that we glorify him, we praise him, and we thank him. And at the same time, Lord, we confess, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, let us never lose our wonder of the cross, that we would live each day clinging to it so tightly, so dearly. Lord, would you assure us, especially for anyone here, your people who are struggling, Lord, assure them of the power of those words, it is finished. And as we remember your birth this month, let us remember your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and the promise of your return for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.